0: Uh, Last week, we were looking at how we can often feel stuck, but we've got to serve where we're stuck. And I was thinking about that uh, when I thought of what's going on in Haiti. Um, If I could just add to that, I was was reading the report, I realized that the place where some of the Albertan missionaries are stuck is with the family that I was with in 1991 when I was there during another period of civil unrest when they were telling everyone to evacuate. And I was in the same place, in Grand Guave. And I just was reminded today... Um, something that Dana prayed for, Um, you know, it's a big deal to us. The Albertans get evacuated, and they should, or at least get out of there. But when I was there, and they were telling us to evacuate, and we couldn't evacuate because no one would come get us, um, I was reminded how, yeah, Us white guys can get evacuated, but you know what? The church in Haiti, the brothers and sisters, they can't just be evacuated. This is the place they are in, and this is the place where God has placed them and God has called them, and so to stand in solidarity with them, the brothers and sisters in in Haiti and in other places in the world uh, is super important because in a really vivid way, like we talked about last week, we serve where we're stuck. We serve where we are. And uh and there are many people in this world who can't just choose to get on a plane and go and go home because the place where there's struggle is right where they are. It's their place. And so we continue to pray for them. If you missed that uh if you missed that service last week and, and this series so far, I do encourage you to pick it up. It's on our podcast on iTunes. You can search Erickson Covenant Church or you can get it on our website, EricksonCovenant.ca under sermons and and podcasts. And for those who are listening in, I'm glad you are. <laughs> Well, let's recap. After years in prison, Joseph is now the ruler of all Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself, the king of Egypt. Joseph, overnight, becomes the Egyptian minister of agriculture, business, natural resources, domestic and foreign affairs, all wrapped into one very powerful position. Make your head spin. But what about his family? What about his father and his brothers? Because the last we heard of them in the story, they were kind of counting out their, the money they'd got for Joseph while dad was over there refusing to be comforted because he thought his beloved son had been torn apart by wild animals. That's where we left the brothers and the father. How have they been faring so far? It's actually been 22 years since the fateful day that Joseph was pulled up out of the pit and then sold off down the road. 22 years. And today we find out about the rest of the family. The stage has been set for their re-entry into the story because everyone in that area of the world is now two years into a major famine. People are hungry. People are coming from all over to Egypt because God's strategic placement of Joseph... All the years that Joseph spent learning how to lead, learning how to administrate in the house of Potiphar, all the years he spent in jail leading and serving, honing his gifts and deepening his character, all the things we talked about in the past, because of God's strategic placement of Joseph there, and then as a result, now second to Pharaoh himself, Egypt, in the midst of famine, is still sitting pretty with lots of grain. Pretty amazing. Well, we're going to read Genesis chapter 42 together. Uh, you might have it uh, in a Bible in your in your uh, chairs there. You might have brought a Bible. You might look it up on your phone, but you can just listen as well. Genesis 42 is the opening of another scene, um, and and it's going to go on. It's a much longer story, but you're going to have to come back the next couple Sundays to get the rest because it's a it's a really long story. Uh, so we're going to start with Genesis chapter 42. I'll read it with. Uh, I'll try to keep my commentary to a minimum. And then and then come back. Okay. So, when Jacob, Joseph's father, right? And he goes by the name Israel as well. So, back and forth. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, I love this. Listen to this. He said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? There's a tone there, I think. There's a tone there. All right. Why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued. I heard there is grain in Egypt go down there and buy some for us that we may live and not die then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt but Jacob did not send Benjamin Joseph's brother it might be helpful to know Joseph's full brother Joseph and Benjamin shared the mom and dad the other brothers a polygamous family the other brothers were only half brothers same dad different moms okay, this is you know, important to know that So Jacob would not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others, because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for the famine was now in the land of Canaan also. It's spreading, large large area. Canaan's to the east of of Egypt. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Do, 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 do. remember do you remember the early remember the remember the dream he had when he was 17 when that arrogant punk walked up to his other brothers and told them what i had a dream and in this dream my sheaf of grain stood up and your sheaves of grain bowed down to me remember that yeah and then he went even further and said i had another dream you know, i had another dream The the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowed down to me. Yeah, he really was popular. It led him, well, it was part of what provoked his brothers to do what they did. But anyway, so remember remember that story. Okay, you remember that dream? Look at this. The brothers arrived. They bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, you are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them, you have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, Your servants were twelve brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. Joseph said to them, It is just as I told you. You are spies. And this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. I just got a little bit, just a little bit of the feeling that Joseph said, you want to taste the prison? I was in there for years. I'm going to put him here on, maybe. Okay, maybe not. But three days to cool their heels? Oof. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back to your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them. Since he was using an interpreter. Didn't know that to this point, did you? He was using an interpreter. He was just standing there acting stoic. Well, his stoicness broke. Listen to what happened. He hears them say this. He turned away from them, Joseph did, and began to weep. Then he came back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in the sack, in their sack, his sack, and to give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened a sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank, and they turned to each other, trembling, and said, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them. They said, The man who was lord over the land spoke harshly to us and treated us as though we were spying in the land. But we said to him, we are honest men. We are not spies. We are twelve brothers. Sons of one father. One is no more. And the youngest is now with his father. Our father in Canaan. The man who is lord over the land said to us, this is how I will know whether you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food to your starving households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me so I'll know that you are not spies but honest men. Then I will give your brother back to you and you can trade in the land. As they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his pouch of silver. When they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Their father Jacob said to them, You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more. And Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Imagine bartering with your father like this. You may put both my sons to death if you don't if I don't bring them back to you. Entrust him to my care and I will bring him back. But Jacob said, My son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead and he's the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. What a story. Whoo. This is intense, eh? The drama is unfolding. The brothers are back, but man, things are rough. We get a glimpse into what's been going on for this family. Well first, let's ask, what's going on with Joseph? I mean, is he just angry? He's like, finally, 22 years and I get my vengeance. Is that what's going on here? I gotta think he was a bit stunned by their arrival, right? I gotta think he's just too along doing his job, leading Egypt, you know, the day job. He's already got kids of his own, he's got a family of his own, and all of a sudden there's his brother. I gotta think some blood surged in him, you know? I gotta think he felt something like, oh yeah! Look at them bowing in front of me. Maybe. Or is that just me? I might have felt that. But again, he's been tempered, right, by years. Of humility years in service, years in prison. And he seems to put on a bit of an act. Maybe to test them. What's his repeated accusation? You heard it over and over and over again. What was it? You are spies. You are spies. You are spies. No, no, no. no. You're spies. The whole way through. And the result, he tricks them into disclosing family details. And then he uses that by saying, oh, fine. I'll lock one of you up until you can prove your story. Very sneaky. There's a reason why he's leaving all of Egypt. Smart dude. But what's he doing? Any thoughts I'd love to know? What is he doing here? Shout it out. What do you think he's doing? Trying to bring his family to him? Okay. Yeah, maybe. What else? Say that again, Val? Yeah, yeah. He can't come right out and say, how's dad? Well, at least he could have, but, you know, that would have ruined the surprise. Uh, so, yeah, you get information. What else? Testing them. How is he testing them, Calvin? Right. Yeah, so he's like, he's going to test their integrity, their, their honesty. Yeah. Anyone else? What's he doing here? Yeah, he's looking for humble spirit. He's looking to see if there's been any kind of change in them. Like, 20 years is a long time. So what's going on with these guys? So he's, he's, he's looking for that? Anyone else? What is he looking for? What is he testing? I think, I think, I think he's testing their truthfulness, their integrity. He's looking for heartache. He's wondering about, I think, what are their relationships like with each, with each other? Or maybe with their father? Or maybe with their, well, his full brother, their other half brother? He's, he's somehow trying to figure out If there's been any change. But how would he be able to tell if there'd been change? It wouldn't, it's not good enough, at least he doesn't think so, just to flatter and ask him, say, could you let me know, like, are you still the murderous lot that you were 22 years ago? It doesn't work right that, it doesn't work that way. So, he somehow figures out, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna spring this trap, and because it's just a smart guy, he thinks on his feet, he puts together an elaborate, elaborate trap that is set to reveal their character. And what unfolds over the next few chapters in Genesis is all about that. It's one of my favorite stories from the Hebrew Scriptures. Well, that's Joseph. What about the brothers? How are these weird events sitting with them? <laughs> well, as Joseph begins to push and pressure them, what do they immediately do? They immediately assume that what's happening to them is a direct result of their sin against Joseph 22 years before. I think that's very revealing, don't you? I think it reveals something that all these years have passed. And they are dragging Joseph with them every step of the way. All these years have passed, and the moment they run into difficulty, they immediately assume it's because of what we did to Joseph. This is punishment for past sin. Friends, that's how unresolved guilt and shame works. Isn't that how it works? Now, in a funny way, not as punishment exactly, but in a funny way, of course, what's happening is because of what they did a long time ago. Um, Joseph wouldn't be standing there if that hadn't happened. And as we learn, as the story unfolds, God was at work in that. Turns out that the brother they would have sooner forgot when he was 17. They never could forget in all the years that followed. And their sin had dogged their heels. Well, Joseph follows through with his plan, uh, Simeon, one of the ten brothers, is kept back in prison, while the others are released. Now I noticed as I was reflecting on the story that it's after Joseph overhears their admission of guilt, this is happening because. It's after that, that he then Shows them generosity, returns their silver, provides them with provisions, lets them go. I don't know, maybe, maybe at that point Joseph was already beginning to wonder, has there been a change of heart in my brothers? Because admitting guilt is the first step. I and mean, he may have wondered at that point how far the change had gone, how deep it had gone. So secretly Joseph returns these grain payments, but this act of generosity was not welcomed by the brothers. You all picked that up. Secret generosity on top of secret guilt, does not bring freedom. It instills fear in them. They are scared. They are rocked to the core. And at uh, at the moment of this terrifying encounter with Joseph, now they're they're saying, not only is what is the ruler of Egypt want with us, but God, what is God doing to us? You in the picture here? Joseph can't trust his brothers. There's estrangement there, obviously. He's testing. The brothers are confused about what's happening. They experience afresh something they've been experiencing all along. This ancient guilt for this unredeemable sin. There it is again. Guilty, confused, fearful, estranged. This family has experienced such trauma and at their own hands. Right? The trauma we're talking about is something that they have done to each other that they have inherited from their parents and grandparents. It's something that has been pervasive in this family, and the strain isn't over. They get home, they tell their father everything that's happened, including Simeon's detainment in Egypt, and, and now Benjamin's summons to Egypt, and then all the family trauma just spews out of Jacob's mouth. You've deprived me of my children, Joseph, you know, uh, Jacob shouts. Joseph's no more. Simeon's no more. Now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. Everything is against me. This is a family that's racked by grief and guilt and fear. A family that's still caught profoundly in these, these cycles of dysfunction and distress and distrust. A family who's estranged from one another and they're complete loss as to what to do. Joseph refusing to do anything for his family that would endanger his last favored son. It's a messy family, hey? We've talked about that before. It's right here in the story that we need a reminder that God never forgets. Never forgets his promise. Never forgets his people. He never forgets his plan. He's still at work in this family. What does this mean for us? You know, we can hear these stories and we see ourselves in them, I think. Some of us do, even more than others. Yeah, I'm familiar with that family. We resonate with them because we know how in our own families, we've seen family dysfunction keep rearing its ugly head again and again, repeating itself over and over. We can see that played out in the family and friends around us. We can see the way that grief and trauma continues to keep people down. How distance and difficulty make it hard for even people who should have loved and cared for each other. Hard for them to recognize one another. Hard for them to relate to each other. And without the forgiveness that Jesus offers, which enables us to receive healing for deep wounds and deep hurts, to to admit our own sin and the ways we've contributed to these patterns of dysfunction, to, to actually experience the forgiveness that Jesus accomplished. Without all that, we can end up being stuck in these doom loops of dysfunction. Apart from honest admission of guilt, apart from asking for forgiveness, not only of, of, of Jesus, but of the, the lives and the people who've been hurt, to, from heartfelt apologies being made, from determined attempts to rebuild broken relationships with the help and the grace of God, apart from those things, there's really no way forward. Now, you may think that's a this is a terrible place to stop the story today. I kind of do too but man, the story's really long and you don't want to be here until three o'clock this afternoon. But I also think there's something that I want us to notice. Something really, really important. I want you to see how even here at this story, at this point in the story, that this story ultimately points us to Jesus. Jacob is horrified by the idea that Benjamin would have to be presented to this unknown ruler of Egypt. And he flat out refuses, in his own words, to give up his only son. He's not going to do anything to endanger his last favorite. <laughs> what about the other nine? Yeah. His blind devotion, his doting favoritism, his long grief have, has made it impossible for him to even contemplate the option of sending Benjamin down. Never mind the fact that Benjamin is probably in his, what, 30s? In other words, if Jacob was your dad and you were in jail in Egypt, you'd rot there for the rest of your natural life. Right? That's what it means. You don't matter compared to Benny boy, the golden child. Too bad for you. You see where I'm going with all this? Do you? You've been around this story long enough. Some of you are like, oh, I mean, I could preach. You want to preach the rest of this sermon? You want to come up right now and do it? You know where this is going. Some of you newer to faith in Christ or newer to the church. I want to point out there's something happening here. Listen to this. The good news story that we discover in Jesus, the story that's linked back to that first promise we talked about in Genesis 12, when God said to Abram, I'm going to bless your family and through your family, I'm going to bless all the nations. I'm going to bless the whole world. That promise is coming to play even here. And it points toward the good news story of Jesus that we celebrate. Because we discover at the coming of Jesus that God looked at you and I stuck in our jail cells, deep in our transgressions and sins, dead in our transgressions and sins, lost and afraid and hopeless and confused and broken. And God did the exact opposite of what Jacob does. Total opposite. In the words of the Apostle Paul, God did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. That God the Father sent his one and only son, his beloved son, his favorite son, and not just for some vaguely troubling date with a foreign dignitary, but actually sent his precious son into the world so that he could take our place in the jail cell, so he could slip our feet out of the stalks and put his own feet into them so that he could become sin in our place. The Son came to emancipate us. He conspired together with his Father and with the Holy Spirit to win our freedom, and he did it without reservation. And that's the incredible story of the good news of Jesus that we talk about, the gospel, which means good news. It's where this whole story is heading. The whole arc of the story is going and pointing to Jesus. And what this means is this. God is the opposite of a traumatized, selfish, overprotective human parent. And we can all be very thankful for that. God is the self-giving Father. The Father who is willing to lose His most precious Son so that He can release captives, so that He can gain many more children as a result. We all know John 3.16, for God did not... What? God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. But the next verse is really important. John 3.17 says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. And friends, this makes all the difference. We've been exploring all through this series how God never forgets, never forgets His people, never forgets His purposes, never forgets His priorities. And we need to hear that God never forgets us in our prison. He never forgets us in the prison of our family trauma or past sin or relational dysfunction or harmful addiction. God never forgets us in our prison. He never forgets His plan to come to us by His Holy Spirit. To offer us freely this new life accomplished through Jesus and this new covenant He made through His life and death and resurrection in the next two weeks as we continue the story we'll see how that fully unfolds but we're going to stop there for today well close to stop let me ask you a couple of reflection questions as we finish what guilt and shame do you carry what kind of shame keeps resurfacing in your life or maybe I can put it another way have you ever caught yourself thinking when things go bad why is God punishing me I know you have. I know some of you have. I know that that recurs in us. That when something bad happens, that's because God's punished me. God's got it out for me. This is This is payback. Or conversely, when something good happens, you look around. Because surely this was a mistake and somebody else has got it out for me too. So whether it's bad or whether it's good, we feel our guilt and our shame resurface and we wonder what's going on. We can be caught thinking of God and life in a way that forgets what Jesus did, what he definitively did when he came and lived and died and rose again. Because in Jesus, all sin has been finally dealt with, finally and totally dealt with. In Jesus, we've been freed from death for life. And when we come to Jesus, he's offering us true and lasting forgiveness. In this stunning reversal of fortune, Jesus became our sin so that we could become His righteousness. He swapped places with us and left to our account all of His goodness, all of His grace, all of His purity, all of His right relationship with the Father. He offered it to us and He took our place in brokenness and sin and death. And as a result, to quote the Apostle Paul again, there is now no condemnation no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus no condemnation that means that our past sins are no longer part of our present not, 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 not present in the way that we think of it not, not present punishment we don't look around and wonder oh yeah I know I've been forgiven but I'm still waiting for the piano to drop No, Jesus himself took our punishment upon himself. And so when we begin to feel a sense of condemnation or dread or shame, we can call that out because that's no longer a load that we need to carry. That's a load Jesus already carried. And so when we feel that resurface in us, we have an opportunity right then to reaffirm our trust in the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, things can still go wrong in our lives because of past decisions. Some of us are still paying off credit card debt. We know we shouldn't have. Some of us are still experiencing things in our lives that are consequences of decisions in the past. That is true. So past sin does affect our present life. But there's a very important distinction to be made for those who have received the forgiveness of Jesus. Though God is a loving Father who does not punish us for our sins because we have been forgiven in Christ, because He's that kind of a loving Father, He's also a loving Father that disciplines us as his kids. The writer of another New Testament letter, the letter to the Hebrews, he tells us that when we experience God's discipline, God's correction, God bringing something to our minds and hearts, or, or, or even creating a scenario where we have to address things that have been ignored, when we experience that kind of discipline, he tells us to rejoice. Because it's a reminder that we're real kids of God. Yeah? Yeah? You're experiencing discipline, correction, having to deal with something in your life, having to address a dysfunction in your family, having to go back and ask for forgiveness from someone else, having to, to actually admit that there's some things that have been broken in your life. It's like, oh God, thank you for loving me. I'm one of your kids. Isn't that awesome? You can think about the next time you're feeling God's discipline. And what the writer of the Hebrews says, look, take it as a great sign. Why would God bother, God bother disciplining you if he didn't love you? If you were one of his kids. But you are. And then, aside from that, the writer says, God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. God brings past sin, past shame, past guilt. He brings it to our attention not to punish us, but so that we can truly experience the freedom of his forgiveness. God's ultimate goal is always our good transformation. So, when guilt and shame rears its ugly head, we don't have to do like the brothers did in this story and go, what has God done to us? We don't have to cry out with Jacob and say, everything is lost, you've ruined everything. We remember instead that we're loved by a God who doesn't condemn us, who doesn't shame us, who doesn't punish. We're able to trust in his goodness. We're able to even engage the process of healing, engage the process of admitting the ways that sin has affected our lives because we can do that under the embrace of a loving, caring God who never punishes but does discipline, who's committed to us growing and maturing and overcoming and loving and knowing that we are his holy kids. Well, in the family of Jacob and Joseph, God never forgot his plan. He's still working it out in them. God is working to bring about their redemption, to save this family. As it turns out, we'll hear later, 70 of them, including Joseph and his family, are going to eventually be moving into Egypt for hundreds of years, where they will grow there. And God will use this family, save this family, but also bless Egypt, as he's doing now, even through the life of Joseph. But God's purposes and plan are far greater than that because as we've been reminded all along, it's through this pathologically dysfunctional family that the precious, beloved, favored Son of God will come. And when He comes, the Father will not hold Him back. When He comes, He comes with the blessing and the mission and the heart of the Father, empowered by the Spirit to redeem and save. The captives. God never forgets us. Never forgets us in the prison of our shame and guilt. He never forgets us now and comes to us by his Holy Spirit so that we can experience the release of Jesus in our own lives. Can you pray with me? Father, you are amazing. You did not hold back. Jesus, the fact that you took upon yourself in in total agreement with your Father and the Holy Spirit to come, to be one of us, to take our place, to do for us what we could not do. I take great comfort in knowing that you never forgot your plan. That you never forget us in our prison. But that you long to bring the the established the accomplished, the factual forgiveness of Jesus accomplished on the cross, you love to bring that into our lives so that the guilt and the shame and the condemnation that we may carry can be truly released to you. And we can experience your freedom, some for the first time, some again and again. And so today, as a community that is loved by you, as people who are experiencing your grace, as those who are here today who are just exploring who you are, Jesus, and and maybe today heard for the first time that, that they can receive freedom from this guilt and this shame that they keep carrying. Lord Jesus, for each one of us where we are, would we release to you the guilt and shame and receive your forgiveness? Would we receive your healing? And may we live out the words that we heard today, that we are people who live with no condemnation. Because we are in you, Jesus. I ask that your blessing would rest upon us today. And as we leave here, would we leave, Father, trusting in your love and your discipline. Jesus, trusting in your forgiveness and your healing. the Holy Spirit, moving out to share with the world this powerful good news story that you've given us to share. We pray this in your name. Amen.